0: This is episode 56 How the GI System is Connected to Hashimoto's and Hypothyroidism with Dr. Norm. Dr. Norm is the founder of Digestive Health Institute, and he strongly advocates for drug and antibiotic free dietary, behavioral, and integrative solutions for functional GI disorders and a variety and various forms of gut dysbiosis. He helps people who have concerns about side effects and health risks associated with long-term drug-based treatment for those who use conventional treatments that were ineffective. His approach is based off of the principles of the fast-track diet, including number one, dietary, number two, identifying and addressing underlying causes that are specific to the person. And number three, pro-absorption and gut-friendly behavior behaviors and practices, including supplementation. This conversation, you guys is absolutely amazing. I learned so much. I know for many of you, this may be an overwhelming conversation, but I promise if you come back and listen to it over and over again, you will learn and begin to understand more and more the connection between your gut and your thyroid and how these things can work together and how really simple these solutions are. So hang out with me and Dr. Norm and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome back to the Thriving Thyroid Podcast, where we choose to become empowered patients and take our health into our own hands. Hi, I'm Shannon Hansen, a Christian entrepreneur, a mom of three, and after dealing with my own health mysteries, I made it my mission to learn everything I could about the thyroid. I soon became certified as a holistic wellness practitioner, a functional nutrition practitioner, and a functional diagnostic practitioner, and so much more. After that, I founded the revolutionary thyroid program, The Hansen Method. that work for not only your thyroid your hormones your family and your mindset so that you can get back to living the life that you envision for yourself welcome to the thriving thyroid podcast all right you guys i am so excited to welcome dr norm to the podcast episode welcome
1: thank you nice to be here shannon
0: yeah this is gonna be super fun so just to give the listeners a little bit of background, who are you, what do you do, what do you specialize in, and how did you get there?
1: Mm. Yes, so I'm a microbiologist by training. Um, spent a lot of years, I spent some years in academic research and working for biotech companies. Um, the way I got into digestive health, which is what I've been doing for the last 17 years, is uh, that I just happened to notice that something about a diet that really helped my own chronic acid reflux. I never paid attention to diets, was never on a diet of any kind. But in my 30s, I started having terrible acid reflux and found that really watching my carbohydrates made a dramatic impact. And the more I started digging into that, I was curious and researching why, why that would be. Um, I ended up coming up with a new theory of the underlying cause of acid reflux which instead of a dysfunctional lower esophageal sphincter, right? You've heard that 60-year-old idea that everyone else seemed to be accepting. It didn't make sense to me. And so I started thinking about it and came up with this theory that in my case, I was eating a high-carbohydrate diet. And that perhaps my digestion as I was hitting my forties was not as good as it was when I was 18. And I wasn't digesting all of those carbohydrates well. And I knew from being a microbiologist that bacteria in our intestines is hundred trillion of them. They're there for a lot of good reasons too, but that they, they prefer carbohydrates as a fuel source, especially early in the digestive tract. And they get a lot of energy from it and they produce a lot of gas, various gases hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide. And there's a different type of organism that uses those gases, uses hydrogen to produce methane. And my theory was that they, I was getting too much gas production in my intestines. It was translating into my stomach and the pressure was building up and actually driving acid reflux. So it was a completely new way of looking at that. And I just got so excited about it. I, I wrote a self-published book late at night, um, you know, read the Amazon reviews. It's filled with typos and so forth. But I wanted to get this idea, this theory out there. And so since then, I've really come into the field of digestive health, again, you know, using my microbiology background um, since the you know microbes play such a huge role in in digestive and overall health. Uh, and so I've been doing that ever since, consulting in this field and written some more books, you know with with an editor this time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be me. I I tell everybody I don't care about typos. I just just figure yeah. it out. I get well, some
1: people time. do. <laughs> I know.
0: I, <laughs> I not me. <laughs> if I can figure it out, and if it's close enough, then I'm good. So, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, I I think that that's really interesting that you started to make that connection because for the average person, obviously you have some background, but for the average person, they're not going to fully understand or even make the connection. And the more I'm working with women with thyroid, the more I see some people are waking up to, Hey, food is affecting me. And then this Mm -hmm. other group of people of food has nothing to do with it. You know,
1: that was me, you know, but it it gets your attention when you're not well. Yes.
0: Yes. So let's talk about thyroid issues and digestive health, but help us first understand a little bit about that fast track diet mm. what it is and how it
1: works mm. yeah right so initially right i was just kind of uh, on a lower carb diet it made me feel better but i started thinking about which carbohydrates are the most troublesome it with this model, carbohydrate malabsorption and and these carbs feeding blooms of gas producing bacteria. And so I, I reasoned that the more difficult carbohydrates, the more difficult they were to digest and absorb, the more they would persist in the intestines with the potential to feed these blooms of bacteria. So I called that fermentation potential. And that's the basis of this diet. And so it's for people with IBS and GERD and other conditions that involve bacterial overgrowth, like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, that's a big one, but there are other forms of dysbiosis. And so the diet is a way to basically put our microbes on a diet. And, and these microbes, as I mentioned, they're good and healthy when, when things are balanced. We have a hundred trillion of these bacteria from a thousand different species and they populate mostly our large intestine. And they help train our immune system from when we're babies. Uh, they protect us against invading pathogens. They help regulate bile levels. They regulate appetite and uh, fat storage. But most importantly, the reason we evolved with these microbes in our gut, like other, all other animals, is because they're able to process these carbohydrates that we don't, right? I was I was looking at I don't want to cause symptoms by having too many of those but when you're trying to survive and and those you know hard to digest carbs from roots and you know things if you can't find other foods and you you eat whatever you can you know twigs and and ferns and a lot of these carbohydrates you won't digest and absorb but the bacteria can ferment them and when they do that in addition to the gas they can make to cause symptoms they also produce fats in the form of short chain fatty acids and those fats like propionate and butyrate and others can nourish our cells, our colonocytes that line in the intestines, but also our muscle cells. Propionate is a great fuel source for our muscles. And so these microbes are producing those fats. And that back in Paleolithic times, that could be the difference between starving and not starving. So they do all of these great things. But unfortunately, when they get out of balance, we do have these various forms of dysbiosis, unbalanced bacterial growth, overgrowth. Um, of these microbes, and a lot of gas. So that's what this diet um, targets. And um, it does it by a couple of different ways. Um, One is that it limits the full range of fermentable, but hard to digest carbohydrates. And what are those? Lactose, fructose, resistant starches, fiber, and there's lots of different types of fibers, and most sugar alcohols. There's, There's one kind of gut-friendly sugar alcohol called erythritol. But the other ones, they're much like a carbohydrate. We don't digest them well, but they are are fermentable. So I came up with a strategy to quantitatively limit those five types of carbs in any food. And you don't need to know how much of them are in a food because I created this FP calculation, fermentation potential calculation. It's kind of a reverse of the glycemic index. So you use the glycemic index and nutritional facts for any food and you get this FP. Now, in the Fast Track Digestion books, there's one on IBS, there's one on GERD. In the Fast Track Diet mobile app, um, those calculations are done for you. There's tables. And in the mobile app, there's like 1,200 foods or so. And you can just punch in what you're eating and the serving size, the app will calculate the points in it. And you can also put in all of your symptoms. And if you find your symptoms are going up, you might realize, wow, I need to reduce my points because FP points, another, another name for those you could use is symptom potential. Less points means less fermentable material. It's actually measured in grams. Um, so it makes it easy for you to be on a diet that limits these troublesome carbs. So, um, that's the main part. This FP calculation, there's uh, the book and the app contains a lot of pro-digestion behaviors and practices, things you can do to improve your digestion so that you'll get more of the carbs, the bacteria will stay on more of a diet. And then there's also um, a section on potential underlying or contributing causes of these conditions. And it's it's quite numerous. So there's a lot to work through, but it's it's helpful in that. But my consultation program in particular really focuses in on these underlying um, causes to rule most of them out so that you can identify and address the the ones that remain.
0: I love that. Well, and I would love to just talk for really briefly about what are some of the connections that you're seeing with that dysbiosis and something Mm -hmm. specific like um, SIBO. And the reason, so for all the listeners, little bit of background. Everybody knows that my dad died from cancer. He had stage four lung cancer, but prior to that diagnosis, my dad never smoked. So it wasn't, (laughs) I mean, he was exposed to secondhand smoke growing up, but when I look back at, um, his digestive health, Mm. I can't go back and test him now, but I mean, maybe I could be really expensive. And anyways, I look at some of his symptoms and I'm like, I think he had SIBO. So mm-hmm. for, for the listeners, what are some of the conditions that would warrant, you know, some further investigation in terms of SIBO or gut dysbiosis yeah. or something like that?
1: Sure. Well, you know, I mean, the first sign would be symptoms, right? I mentioned reflux um, that reflux regurgitation, belching, laryngopharyngeal reflux, a lump in the throat, a sore throat, respiratory issues, clogged sinuses, or eustachian tubes, your ears are all plugged up. Those are some kind of reflux related symptoms, but there's also, um, kind of IBS symptoms, irritable bowel syndrome, altered bowel habits, diarrhea or constipation, uh, feeling bloated all the time or physically having distension. Um, so there's, there's a whole variety of symptoms, um, weight loss. If you have more severe, more severe case. Um, and those were all would, I guess if you had those, you might consider working with somebody or getting tested to see if you did have, um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So you can get, there's a hydrogen lactulose breath test. You can get, um, that will, it, it you, you basically blow in a little tube, and, and the gases, if you have SIBO, hydrogen produced from bacteria in your intestines, it's absorbed into your bloodstream, exhaled through your lungs. And so when you're blowing these tubes, if you had a lot of hydrogen and you put the cover on and label it, send it into this company, it would show that you had hydrogen. So you basically blow in a tube at time zero, put the cover on, then you drink this lactulose and it's a sugar solution, but it's not digestible at all. It's like a fiber. And so, but bacteria can ferment that sugar. And so then you drink it after your first tube, you drink the sugar, and then you, every 15 minutes or 20 minutes, you blow in a new tube, put the cover on, send them all back. And basically what they're looking for is your breath hydrogen levels over time. If they go up too sharply, too high or too sharply, say before 90 minutes, they'll likely conclude that you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now, there's also methanogens, these archaea organisms that produce methane from that hydrogen, so it's good if you can get a hydrogen methane breath test to know what your methane levels are. You may have high methane levels, and that can be linked to constipation as well. And there's a third gas now, hydrogen sulfide, that's produced by sulfate, sulfate-reducing bacteria. And some people have very high levels of hydrogen sulfide. And there's now a test called TrioSmart that measures all three of those gases. So if you're really curious, there is, there is testing out there you can get. But symptoms is the place to start. Um, But also, if you have just some of the potential underlying causes, if you happen to know about those, that might trigger you to look into that further, right? We talked about all these 25 or 30 different things that can underlie these conditions. So motility, low stomach acid, um, problems with your immune system, maybe you have low secreted immunoglobulin A in your stool test, or a low... um, uh, uh, elastase, a pancreatic enzyme in a stool test that says your pancreas might not be working so well, and pancreatic enzymes might be low. Um, there's just so many of these uh, these different conditions. Having a GI infection, you know, any kind mm-hmm. of inflammatory condition, um, liver problems, alcoholism, um, just over consuming carbohydrates, like I did <laughs> back in the day. Um, so if you have those conditions or these symptoms, yeah, it'd be good to follow up with that.
0: Yeah. And do you recommend for them to see like a PCP to get this testing or do they need to go to a functional doctor or what would be the best way to get the, the testing? Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, it depends on what the test is. There are a lot of um, different practitioners that can do some of these tests. The If you were to do um, a glucose breath test, you can just order a lot of these tests. You can just order directly online. They'll ship it to your house. They'll take the test and send it in. They'll send you the results. Um, however, so you could do a glucose breath test, but if you wanted to do a lactulose breath test, and it may vary a little bit by state, but because lactulose is technically a prescription laxative, um, it's too bad. It's, it's silly. So you need a prescription for the lac- lactulose. So a doctor would have to order the lactulose breath test, which in my opinion, that's the best one to get anyway, because glucose is absorbed too quickly in the intestine. And so you might miss SIBO if it was in kind of the later part. So I'd recommend Laxalus, but that would have to be ordered by uh, a doctor. Um, there's a lot of other ones. You can measure your stomach acid with a Heidelberg test but you'd have to find um, a naturopath or some practitioner that actually has that technology in their office that they can do it. But it's a non-invasive test. You swallow this electronic capsule on a string dangled in your stomach. So it knows what your stomach acid's doing. And then they have you drink. Uh, solutions of bicarb every so many minutes and they see the the stomach acid will, acid will go away it'll become neutralized and then how long does it take your stomach to re to recover that acidity and mm-hmm. then they'll give you more bicarb and then how long does it take to recover and if you're too lo- long in recovering you you may be diagnosed with hypochlorhydria or even achlorhydria which is low or no stomach acid
0: yeah, um, yeah another
1: great test by the way, this one you can get um, direct by the way. One of my favorites is there are now very good comprehensive stool analyses and you can order those direct online. They send it to your house. it's just a poop sample you send it back and it's uh, there's a tremendous amount of activity of um, information you can get out of that that's quite actionable if you're working with somebody that really knows what they're doing. Um, yeah. So those those are some that I would recommend
0: Perfect. I did my first stool sample this year. I did a GI. I did, yes. (laughs) And there was a lot of came back way better than I thought it would, (laughs) which (laughs) was really good. But um, I found out a week later I was pregnant. So, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the things, yeah. Some of the things I would have done, you know, obviously got a little derailed just because we Mm. don't know how that impacts baby. But, um you know very cool information um regardless of what you guys are doing i'm a huge fan of those as well um so let's talk let's kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about how hypothyroidism is connected to your gut health and kind of go over that hpt axis and what that is
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's get to gut health. But yeah, first, just a primer for some of the some of your new listeners, maybe that haven't thought about a lot of this, right, that it's not just your thyroid kind of floating there, the base of your throat out out in the middle of nowhere with it's it's highly regulated. And so there is this um, uh, hypothalamus pituitary uh, thyroid axis, HPT axis, as you mentioned, Um, the hypothalamus region in your brain produces this thyrotropin releasing hormone TRH. And then that. Tells your pituitary gland to start producing TSH, right? Thyroid stimulating hormone. That's the thing most people get tested for in a routine blood test, right? It's not actually produced from your thyroid; it's produced from your pituitary gland. But that tells the uh, that tells your thyroid to start making T3 and T4 hormones, right? Mostly T4, and then some T3. And then when you make enough of those hormones for your body to use to regulate the metabolism and so forth, there's a feedback loop that goes right back to the hypothalamus and says, you know, shut things down. We've got enough. So it's, it's tightly regulated. Um, by the way, uh, a bit of trivia for you, for your listeners too. Um, I didn't know initially why thi- uh, thyroxine T4 and iodothyronine thyr- t3 why are they called t3 and t4
0: the molecules right that are attached yep yes yep okay
1: <laughs> what like... molecules iodine iodine <laughs> molecules so t4 has four of these iodine molecules in its structure and t3 has three just a little bit of trivia there but it also points to the importance of iodine in in thyroid all right and and so it makes sense if somebody's hyperthyroid which Probably not going to get into that today, but if, they had, if they're overproducing thyroid hormones, why they would give them radioactive iodine, because the thyroid's going to take it right up, right? It needs four of them for T4 and three of them for T3. So it's going to take it up, but that will also inhibit uh, or kill thyroid cells and, and reduce the levels. Um, yeah. So, so then what happens, right? With hypothyroidism, something's gone wrong somewhere. And, um, the thyroid isn't producing enough of this T4 and T3. So it's going to slow down your metabolism. It may, um, slow down your intestinal motility. A lot of people complain of constipation. Uh, you might feel tired, gain some weight, be sensitive to cold. Um, and so, and even, you know, and there's many more possible symptoms if it gets bad enough to including like neuropathy, you know, numb or tingling hands and so forth. Um, And then there's a number of causes, right? The main one is this Hashimoto's, this autoimmune condition where your own body is attacking your thyroid with with antibodies. That's the big one. Um, But people that are getting hyperthyroid treatments, they can end up overshooting and then they become hypothyroid or have the thyroid removed and they have no thyroid hormones. They have to be all given to you, Uh, radiation therapy, um, even some things with your diet, having a low um, iodine diet, um, uh, maybe certain medications. I know lithium can can impede your um, your thyroid. Um, yeah, so that's you know just in a nutshell, some of the a little bit of background there.
0: Yeah, sure. So how is that connected to digestive health? Um, or yeah, yeah. How is all of that? How is the HPT axis? Access- connected to thyroid
1: yeah so the HPT axis we are we, we kind of talked about how the hypothalamus talks to the pituitary gland talks to the thyroid gland gland, and then there's feedback it's, so that's kind of in its own loop so um how it interacts with your gut health then that's probably more along lines, lines of what is T4 and T3 doing and all of that right um we do know that somehow and, and i'm no real expert on this but it is these hormones are regulated you know they regulate homeostasis on metabolism how how um much, how well and how fast we process energy and so forth hence the potential fatigue how uh, fast things move through our digestive tract you know motility and and that's why hypothyroidism can result in constipation oftentimes and hyperthyroidism too many uh, uh hormones can end up giving you rapid transit or diarrhea so in a lot of these ways the hypo and the hyper they're kind of the opposite not in all you can get kind of um uh stressed and fatigued from both conditions but in a, in a lot of ways they're they're kind of the opposite um what i've been kind of interested in is um The connection between thyroid, when when we're talking about digestive health, the connection between hypothyroidism and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and then also the stomach producing um, stomach acid. I find those are two really interesting connections linking thyroid with with digestive health.
0: Yes. And I see that all the time with the women that I work with. It's Uh like... (laughs) um stomach acid is a big thing. So we do not that this is like super, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, I don't even know what the word is. Um, We do the burp test with baking soda and a little bit of water.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, I know what you're saying. So in other words, it's not might not be that sophisticated. Yeah, but it's a it's kind of a little gut check, right?
0: Yeah. And most of them don't burp at all. Oh. You know, nice so they're coming back very, very low um, with with stomach acid. So let's let's maybe kind of dive into that and what are some of those connections that you're seeing between thyroid and stomach acid and all of those fun things?
1: Sure, yeah. Let's let's start there. We we know that stomach acid is critical for a lot of things, um, digesting your food, breaking down proteins absorbing iron, vitamin D, other minerals. um, It's really a critical element. It protects your body from getting infected with pathogens like salmonella and clostridia difficile because it's an acid barrier. It also protects your lungs from bacteria that are in, in your own intestines, right? Via reflux, which we talked about. You can reflux bacteria from your gut up into your throat aspirated in. I used to have that when I had GERD 17 years ago, I'd wake up in the middle of the night choking. It was acid in my lungs. I thought I was dying. I didn't know what was going on. And so there's bacteria in that refluxate. And so people that are on proton pump inhibitors that get rid of your stomach acid, they have a higher incidence of pneumonia. No surprise. People on on these Nexium type drugs have a higher incidence of C. diff infections. It's harder to get rid of it's more likely to come back so there's you know you could write a book well is at least one person has on, on low stomach acid and all of you know updated to all of the new risk factors we know about now for when you get rid of stomach acid um, but how does it re- how does it um, relate to to hypothyroidism is kind of interesting right and we know that stomach acid helps absorb T4 right so when you take, thyroxine, right? It's, it's aided by stomach acidity. And how do I know that? Um, there's um, a study on GERD patients that had, with hypothyroidism, that were being treated with a omeprazole, which is like the generic version of Nexium. And they had to take higher levels of T4 medication to maintain the same TSH levels. So um, we absolutely know that you need stomach acid. It helps you um, absorb this T4. In fact, um, I guess also, right, there's estimates that one third of Hashimoto patients have um, antibodies to parietal cells. And so you're going to have to stay with me for a minute to get through this explanation, right? Why is that important? Um, So... Hashimoto's is an autoimmune condition, right? Antibodies, you're attacking your thyroid. People with autoimmune conditions oftentimes have several autoimmune conditions. They kind of travel in packs, right? So it might be ankylosing spondylitis or type 1 diabetes or Hashimoto's and so forth. But they tend to have more than one autoimmune condition. Well, one autoimmune condition is called pernicious anemia, and that is where autoantibodies, it's an autoimmune condition, are attacking the parietal cells that line the middle of your stomach and the body of your stomach. And what do those cells do? They produce stomach acid. And so, what, what I'm saying is that people with Hashimoto's are at increased risk for this pernicious anemia, anemia, also known as autoimmune atrophic gastritis, antibodies to the parietal cells, and you'll have hypochlorhydria. Hopefully not achlorhydria, total lack of stomach acid. But you have a good chance of being having low stomach acid, like the people you tested with with the burp test there. And so, um, you know, what does what does that mean, right? We know that you're going to need more thyroid medicine, number one, and you're going to have all of these other problems I talked about if you have low stomach acid. Um, and it's interesting; that the the connections go further than that. People with Helicobacter pylori infections. That's a bacteria that infects specifically your stomach, and it can cause not autoimmune, but kind of infectious atrophic gastritis, can damage the cells that line your stomach, including these parietal cells, and you get hypochlor- for from H. pylori, a long-term infection. But what's interesting is in studies with a, at least one study with a cured people of this H. pylori infection, Their TSH levels were reduced, suggesting that, wow, the thyroid levels probably went back up and they don't need as much um, uh, TSH. uh, They don't need to produce as much TSH. Um, So I think all of that together makes a strong case that having Hashimoto's puts you at risk for having low stomach acid. And in fact, having low stomach acid, this is another interesting connection, is also a risk factor for SIBO. And so you would ask next, perhaps, do people with Hashimoto's have SIBO?
0: <laughs> well, I should let you answer that, but I, I want to touch on something just really quickly. I, that... I will before we
1: get off. Let <laughs> me answer that later. All right, go ahead. Whatever, whatever, what else?
0: That I want the listeners to really kind of hone in on here is as a practitioner, we're talking about one of your first lines of defense, which is a stomach acid, mm-hmm. right? A lot of this, I mean, it's, I say simple, it's not always like straightforward, do A, then you get B, you know, sometimes there's a few things that are, that are mixed in there, but stomach acid is so important for regulating GI issues and your thyroid. And this is why we see this huge connection between the two of them. And so oftentimes when we start to balance out stomach acid levels, you see thyroid medication dropping, right? Or the dosage. The need
1: for it. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So, and then you're getting off um, acid reflux medicine medicine and the PPIs and things like that as well. So your body is creating that homeostasis without the need for medication. You know, right. so yeah, cool. and
1: in your in your case, you might be talking about two people. Oh, oh, I have low stomach acid. Maybe I can supplement with apple cider vinegar or betaine HCL, get my stomach acid back. And that would have a positive outcome, right? Um, which is a great idea. But what I like to do also when I work with people is, you know, really dig into those questions of okay, okay, you're going to take some apple cider vinegar, if, if you don't have a sore throat from LPR. okay. Otherwise, you're going to take betaine, HCL, which is basically stomach acid, like a material in a capsule. But long term, what are we going to do about this? What's causing it? Let's get to that and fix that. Yes. And just
0: a little like side note tidbit. um, And I think I covered this in one of my other episodes when we talked about birth control. But one of the minerals that is needed to produce stomach acid is zinc. And a lot of women have elevated copper, which pushes down zinc. And so if we can get that copper zinc ratio a little bit better, then we don't need to, like you said, kind of take the apple cider vinegar or take the betaine HCL to balance it out. Our body is able to do it through the minerals. Um, Yeah.
1: (laughs) That makes sense. Just don't go too crazy with the copper. It can be toxic.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of women have elevated yeah. copper, so they are toxic, and their zinc is really low. At oh, least oh, that's I what see. we're seeing. See. Yeah, I so see. we kind of have yeah. to... Um,
1: yeah, that makes so, sense.
0: Yeah, copper is elevated, zinc is low, so we have to bring that yeah. into balance. You do need
1: that zinc, right?
0: Yep, yep. Very good. Which good is immune, right? <laughs> yeah. Toximoto's, so we're, we're kind of... Hopefully, you yeah. guys are seeing some of these connections come yeah. through with yeah. all of this. Um, okay, so what was the question? Let's talk about Hashimoto's.
1: SIBO oh, was yeah. the other SIBO
0: and so, Hashimoto's.
1: Yeah, so we talked about low stomach acid and Hashimoto's, and there's a pretty good connection there that, that it does seem that people with Hashimoto's are at risk for low stomach acid. And in fact, I don't have the... Source material right in front of me, but I believe there's also a connection for low stomach acid in people that are hypothyroid, but not, but don't have Hashimoto's. But I cross-checked me in the literature on that one. Um, I don't have the evidence in front of me, but yeah. So, so SIBO, the SIBO connection. So you might expect Hashimoto's to have a risk for SIBO for two reasons there's a risk of having low stomach acid. And one of the things we didn't mention when you have low stomach acid or even people on PPIs is a higher incidence or risk of SIBO. We talked about C. diff and some other things, but also a higher risk for SIBO because acid is one of those control mechanisms for bacterial overgrowth. So there, if you had low stomach acid, it might make sense that you'd have to be at higher risk for SIBO. Also, uh, Hashimoto's is going to slow down motility in many instances, right? And when the material moving through your digestive tract kind of slows down, stops, stagnates, bacteria grow, they produce more gas, you can have an overgrowth in your large intestine. And when you have an overgrowth in your large intestine, near the small intestine, uh, the ileocecal valve, it may produce gas and push bacteria into the small intestine so you could be more at risk for SIBO from this motility issue. So what, what does the data say, right? What what's the evidence for this? Otherwise I'm just like shooting my mouth off you. And there is some, there was a study done in 2007 and it was with um, 50 Hashimoto's patients and they, they did breath test them, not with the lactulose breath test that I said was the best one that we're talking about. They used the glucose breath test not as sensitive, because it's absorbed too quickly. And yet, over 50% of those 50 patients were positive for SIBO via this glucose breath testing, versus 5% in the healthy control group.
0: Amazing. I I mean, not amazing, but a good information to have.
1: (laughs) And that was using the least sensitive means of measuring SIBO, glucose breath test. Um, So and, and by the way, they did, uh, the, I don't recommend antibiotic treatment for SIBO. I, I really would, would recommend something like the fast-trick diet, a diet approach with looking at underlying causes, looking at pro-absorption behaviors, limiting these types of carbohydrates. That would be the way I would do it. Antibiotics, has a lot of other problems with them, and, and they're not very good for your gut microbiome.
0: Yeah. Thank you for in covering that.
1: <laughs> in this study, they did treat these people that were SIBO positive with antibiotics, and it did improve their symptoms. And improve or resolve their symptoms, but not their thyroid hormone levels. So in that study, they were saying, so it might seem that SIBO is more of a consequence of hypothyroidism compared to the other way around. And they might be right. The only point, potential counterpoint talking point I would make on that is that people that have SIBO can also have leaky gut higher levels of intestinal permeability because bacteria they're making protease and toxins and all these things are overgrowing you get a lot of inflammation you might get some leakiness in your tight junctions that line your small intestine and as people a lot of people believe now including myself that that leaky gut is probably the way most autoimmune reactions start antigens proteins bacteria toxins things leaking out of your gut into your system systemic circulation, your body sees them as foreign, attacks them. But what happens with autoimmunity is oftentimes there's something called molecular mimicry. Some of those molecules look like molecules on the surface of your own cells. And there's a belief that's where really all autoimmune conditions likely begin. Um, there's one instance, one good example where ankylosing spondylitis is an autoimmune reaction where the cartilage in your lower back is attacked by your own body. But it's interesting that there's there's proteins and molecules on the surface of Klebsiella pneumonia bacteria that resemble the molecules on these cartilage cells. And so there's a connection between leakiness and having a lot of Klebsiella pneumonia in your gut and this autoimmune reaction. So um, all I'm saying is there is that connection. But but yes, um, the, the motility, perhaps hypothyroidism predisposes things to, um, to get um, SIBO. Um, there is one other study, a more recent study, 2017, where they looked at kind of charts from patients, about 1,800 patients, but about 175 of them, they had been to the hospital and at some point or another were breath tests, 175 of them or so had SIBO. And that, in that study, they found that hypothyroidism, in particular, taking uh, therapeutic T4, um, was one of the most highly linked things in their study to um, SIBO. So, and now, you know, and it's an association study, but it's still kind of interesting. They had it right up there. The only two risk factors that were more linked to SIBO were was motility disorders We know that's in hypothyroidism and immune dysregulation. So
0: which both of those are connected, right?
1: Yeah. 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 So, So, um, you know, I think there is a strong connection with SIBO and with low stomach acid um, and hypothyroidism. Yeah. So, yeah. So the next question would be, what do you do about this? What
0: do you do? Well, actually I, it just kind of triggered in my brain because a lot of people with uh, thyroid dysregulation also have MTHFR. So I'm wondering if there's also a genetic component to this as well. I don't know if you have a quick answer for that or not, or if that's just
1: you know, it's I've <laughs> talked about this before. Um, it, it's a tough topic to talk about because Sorry. it is it is complicated. You know, and this is the metabolism of these sulfur containing amino acids and, um, you know, homocysteine and thionine and all of that. Um, it, it is complicated. Um, the only tidbit I guess I'd throw out there is that most people with these gene variants, right, um, and the they're, and they're variants, not like, oh, my God, you're a mutant, you know? No, yeah. they're not mutants. They're variants. They just have a different sequence, maybe not good or bad. Um, But in most people that do, and there's certain, you know, uh, of these, literally these mutations, and they can tell you exactly where they are. um, Most people that have them have only one uh, mutation or gene variant, and one of their two copies of of the genes for that particular trait. And so there's a lot of speculation that, um, that an industry has grown up around this, but is it really an issue? Um, you know, a lot of people would argue, with it, but I would just say I'm still in kind of the, the listening mode there to, to gather more evidence.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I, I'm with you in terms of that. It was just like a, I don't know, a random thought that kind of came in because yeah. sometimes I'm like, well, wait, if this is that and that <laughs> yeah. is this, you know, just trying it's- to put the spider webs together,
1: <laughs> making the connections is the first place to stop. But then you need to look for that evidence that really buttons it up or not.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So before we kind of wrap this up, what is low carb? It is low carb, a good thing or a bad thing for mm-hmm. thyroid. Mm-hmm. I, we've talked about this, I think a few times, you know, on podcast yeah. episodes and yeah. yeah. And, Facebook lives and all the things, but I would love to hear
1: your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's contentious. Um, And just uh, as a reminder, the fast track diet system, it's really a flexible point system. So it can be used by people on a high carb plant-based diet. It could be used by people that are doing keto or even maybe doing carnivore some days of the week. So it is a sliding point system that's used to control these these symptoms. So it's not necessarily low carb or keto. Although I do th- personally, just the circles I run in, I, I feel like there's a lot of evidence that low carb and, and even keto part of the time uh, are healthy states and can improve a lot of, um, a lot of uh, uh, health conditions. So that's just my own, my own, um, I guess, um, uh, you know, preference for myself, I, I tend to be on a lower carb diet. And, not only for GI issues, but also for, for weight gain helps me my particular metabolism, um, control my weight a little bit better. Um, but there are some, um, points about this, um, whether or not it's low carb is good or bad. So first of all, I guess there are people that say low carb is not good for hypothyroidism because or for your thyroid, because on a low carb diet, a very low carb diet, you your T3 levels are lower,
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: and nobody denies that. Um, uh, there was one study. Uh, God, it was a while back, two thousand and one. But they showed that um, they they looked at a diet with fifteen percent energy from protein, and the the carb energy was um, somewhere around 85, 44, and then all the way down two percent, right? And that I guess fat calories would make up the rest. And they looked at these T3 values, and It was significantly lower, like 1.78 at the highest carbs, nanomoles per liter. I just wrote down those numbers here, compared to 1.33 nanomoles per liter T3 on a very low carbohydrate diet. So it is lower. But really, the question is what does it mean? Does it mean that a low carb diet is bad for your thyroid or that you need less thyroid hormone? That's really what I think the debate best boils down to. And, um, uh, and by the way, in that same study, um, free T4 levels, reverse T3, um, TSH levels, um, did not increase. Oh, I'm sorry, increased. Reverse T3 and free T4 increased, but TSH was unchanged. And resting energy expenditure, right, Meta- metabolism on on the very low end on all of those ranges of carbs did not change. So there is. You know, and and so Hashimoto's, you know, one of the things they're dealing with is, oh, my God, I have no energy and so forth. So I can see why you could say, well, low carb, that might give me even lower energy. There might be additive. Um, But I personally think it is probably more along the lines of your body um, uh, regulating its thyroid a little bit different. I know on, on a low carb diet, very low or ketogenic diet, there is kind of an adjustment period. So people do complain of like, oh, the keto flu or I'm tired or it can last for several days or a week or longer. Um, not everybody is consuming enough fats when they're on a low carb diet. That could be part of the fact because part of the problem, because your body is trying to transition to using fat for energy over carbs. And there's a lot of changes that need to go on for that. Um at the level of gene expression, all of this, you know, repression and regulation we talked about it at a genetic level, that happens when you change fuel sources too. So um, there are some people that have made uh, you know, some good cases either way. I think Ron Rose Rosedale, he's a low-carb keto guy. Um, he has made the point that it doesn't, that low carb high fat doesn't lead to hypothyroidism, um, because otherwise TSH would go up and it wouldn't. Um because a low T3 would stimulate a higher, if you needed it, a higher level of THA, it doesn't happen. So he makes that point. Um, He thinks low carb, kind of slowing down metabolism is, he actually thinks it's the secret to longevity. And he bases that on looking at, uh, uh, what do they call centenarians? They have low T3, but they're not considered hypothyroidism. These are people over a hundred. Um, and also the same with calorie restricted animals and studies where they live longer. So he's saying you may be better off with lower T3 if it's on a low carb diet and it might, uh, you might live longer. So there's two sides to it. I still read about it, but I'm, I'm just kind of interested in, in the debate. And, and I tend to fault to the side of the low carb just because there's been so many other health benefits of that type of dieting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's a really good point is looking at the fuel sources and making sure that you're getting enough protein, enough carbs, enough fats. Because if you take something out, your body has to replace it with something,
1: you know, so so true. Yeah.
0: Figuring out how to balance that.
1: And when I work with people, I know our conversations focused a lot on kind of these carbs and so forth. But when I'm working with somebody in my consultation practice, I want to make sure they're digesting all three food groups properly, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, because you can have problems with all of those. Sure. And if, you, if you're not digesting fats well, for instance, um, you, how can we start changing your diet to cut down on some of these carbs? What are we going to do? So you have to identify these problems and, and address them as you go. And, sure. and one could it's not just carbs. It could be fat malabsorption as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we see a lot of that happening um, with my clients as well, in terms mm-hmm. of we're seeing the clay colored stool, we're seeing floating, we're seeing, you know, mm-hmm. things like that, where it's like, you're just not even breaking down, you know, your carbs, mm-hmm. and now your fats. And so we have this yeah. really wonderful cycle. <laughs> yeah. My um, right. rule of
1: thumb is across the board, less is more. <laughs> We eat too much. We dessert too much. We have too much sugar, and probably most of us have too many carbs in our diet. That's my that's my mantra. And I have is-
0: plenty of carbs, especially right now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, with COVID.
0: Yeah, COVID and baby, and it seems like oh, that's yeah. all I want is oh yeah sweet potatoes.
1: And <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: it could be worse. But yeah, okay. So last but not least. Where can people learn more about your work, your books, your mobile app, everything that you have going on? Because this was amazing.
1: Yeah. No, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it too. Um, The Fast Track Digestion books, uh, Heartburn and IBS, they're available on digestivehealthinstitute.org. The Fast Track links to the Fast Track Diet mobile app. Obviously, you have to buy that from iOS or or Google Play, um, but there's links to that on digestivehealthinstitute.org. The books are also available on Amazon. Um, and you can reach us at digestivehealthinstitute.org. There's a consultation tab. If you want to call me up, you can give me a call and I'll I'll ask you a little bit about what's going on and decide if there's a, a program I have that might be might be appropriate for you. Um, you can also join us on the Fast-Tracked Diet official Facebook group. It's about 11 or 1,200 people that are on the diet and and talking about all the issues. We have some really great Um, admins, uh, um, including a nurse that's a retired nurse on the site. They're just very, very helpful people. Um, And I'm on there occasionally myself, so you can connect with us there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And all of those links will be in the show notes Mm -hmm. um, for you guys, where you guys can book a consultation or, you know, join the Facebook group, read the books, all of those fun things. Thank you, Dr. Norm, for being on. Is there any last words of wisdom or anything that you feel like we just didn't cover?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Shannon. I I should have saved that less is more line and that would have been yeah. good. <laughs> eat slowly and <laughs> chew well is another one. Yes. If you, if you don't do anything else, if you consume less, if you eat slowly and chew well, that's a good place to start.
0: We I love that only because that's one of the big topics in my home. Ah. Um, my kids are like you know i'm like whoa this yeah. is not a race just slow down to yeah. your food
1: right and there's
0: more food if you're still yeah. hungry you know and something
1: we didn't even get into was intermittent and even prolonged fasting it's just a fascinating area to uh to think about and to try i've done yeah. some it's yeah.
0: awesome. absolutely well thank you so much um we will have all of your links linked up in the show notes and hopefully you guys gained a ton of value from today's episode. I know I learned a few things. I took some notes that I'm going to have to transcribe in a safe place. Um, <laughs> but anyways, thank you guys so much for joining. We'll see you on the next. wait before you go. Please subscribe if you found value in today's episode. Leave us a review and share on Instagram and please
1: tag us. We love your reviews. Pretty please.